0: I'm your host, Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron. A military history podcast. And in today's episode, we're covering the 14th century B.C. Battle of Megiddo. We talked last week about the first, quote, battle in history. That was Uma and Lagash. Or at least it was the first time that we could really kind of define something loosely as a battle. But it it really lacked depth and detail and form. This week, that's a little bit different. This week, we're covering the Battle of Megiddo. And however, it's, you know, there are aspects that we wish we had more detail on. This is the first battle that is actually recorded by people that were eyewitnesses. And it gives it all the nuance and shape you'd expect a battle to have. There's an actual day-by-day, week-by-week, month-by-month account of Tutmos or Tutmosis III's campaign. And this is incredible, given the fact that this is some 3,000-plus years ago, and it Definitely set the trend because every conqueror ever since has brought along scribes or you know whatever passed for the media of the time, whether that be historians or storytellers or bards or even monks and and this was so that they could ensure that the world and even posterity would be made fully aware of their many many great victories and at Megiddo, we can officially say that this is the first time that the molding and amplifying of battlefield events happened uh, that we know of. Again, we'll always have that caveat of that we know of for a lot of this ancient history stuff. It's essentially the birth of state-run media propaganda. Like an early version of CNN, the Egyptian scribes shaped the story of the III's campaigns, especially the details of Megiddo. And this was in order to build on the reputation of the pharaoh, uh, begin really impressing foreign dignitaries and, and really pounding uh, the the locals and, and the subjects of the Egyptian pharaoh with that, you know, his overawing ability and, and militaristic might. So by chipping away at solid rock for however hours that uh, it might take or, you know, weeks, This uh, pharaonic messengers from the past are bringing us the latest news from the front. These are the Egyptian Ernie Piles filling us in on what happened on the battlefield thousands of years ago. And there's a lot to cover in this episode, so let's just get right stuck in. Thutmose III is one of the fascinating figures to come out of the shadows of ancient history. His early life reads like something from George R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire. In the 16th century BCE, his great-great-great-grandfather Amos rid Egypt of ruling foreign invaders called the Hyksos and officially started the third phase of classical Egypt, the New Kingdom. Amos's son, Tutmos II, Expanded the power of the Kingdom of the Nile east along the Mediterranean coast and then south down to modern day Sudan and even northwest into Syria. Tutmosis or Tutmos II died pretty early on in his reign, and his son Tutmos III was far too young to rule. So, one of history's most impressive and elusive and almost unknown rulers took over Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut was the daughter of Tutmos I and stepsister slash wife to Thutmose II and mother to Thutmose III. Confusing, I know, but relatively straightforward compared to some of the other pharaonic family trees. At first, Hatshepsut ruled as regent from the shadows, but soon she kind of dispensed with any pretense and ruled openly as pharaoh. And this is the story of Megiddo, but Take a second to think about this. Hatshepsut's rule from 1490 to 1468 BCE stands almost alone in the roughly 30 centuries that the Egyptian empire lasted, from unification around 31 BC to its conquest by Alexander the Great in 332 BC, as Hatshepsut stands as one of the only female pharaohs that we know of, again. And there were other women regents, but few, if any, outright ruled as pharaoh it's crazy to me i i the story of Hatshepsut is is really fascinating she reigned for uh, almost 22 years and by all accounts she seems to have been very effective at it Uh, basically peace and prosperity prevailed trade flowed the arts flourished all of which filled the Egyptian coffers to the brim. And with these riches, Hatshepsut embarked on a massive building plan, throwing up temples and monuments as if she was trying to force the world to remember her name. And we'll find out that was with good reason. Hatshepsut, though uh, a very good ruler on the domestic front, seems to have lacked the steel needed to enforce Egyptian rule on the foreign stage. A kind of lax policy in the Canaan region, modern-day Israel, Palestine, Syria, uh, famously a hotbed for violent discontent from ancient Egypt and Rome to the modern day, led to a series of challenges from the various client kingdoms of the area. The king of Kadesh perceived Egyptian silence for Egyptian weakness and began strong-arming a coalition of the like-minded and weak into resistance against Egyptian rule. Convincing, cajoling, and coercing his neighbors, the king of Kadesh built up enough force to challenge Egyptian power outright. All of Amos and his son's and grandson's work was in jeopardy. The death of Hatshepsut is a mystery to this day. She may have died of cancer, but I prefer the more salacious Targaryen version of history in which she was poisoned by the III. After the successful coup, or from Thutmose's point of view, regaining of his inheritance, uh, Hatshepsut's name was scrubbed, scratched, carved, and deleted in every way from all public buildings and inscriptions. Her rule and accomplishments were struck from both stone and history, and even her mummy was not allowed to stay. In the 1920s, her tomb was excavated and her sarcophagus was empty. We leave the story of one of Egypt's only female pharaohs here, but I suggest you go down the rabbit hole on the Internet and find out more for yourself. It's worth it. It's a a fantastic story, worth its own podcast. But anyhow, Thutmose III is now in power. He's got the reins of control, and uh, he's got a, a good position. He took control of a country that was wealthy and secure for the most part, but it had its issues up in the Northeast, which were nagging ones. Uh, Trump Trouble in the form of the king of Kadesh f- fermented, and Thutmose III, being an aggressive and offensive-minded pharaoh, in the years to come, he would be constantly campaigning, as you'll see, but he realized the danger of an unruly client king and rightfully recognized that the contagion of rebellion had to be cut out. He wanted to go on the attack before his enemies could organize and move against him. And luckily for the Egyptian cause, Thutmose III turned out to be an excellent planner organizer, and military mind. So as we'll see moving forward, and I'll get just as bored saying it as you lot will be bored hearing it, the real numbers for most ancient or even just pre-modern battles are unknown and probably unknowable. Most historians doubt any Egyptian expeditionary army ever exceeded 50,000 men and were likely considerably smaller, somewhere in the twenty to 30,000 man count. At Megiddo, it seems possible the Egyptian army counted something like ten to 15,000 men, and the uh, king of Kadesh's army may be somewhere around there, maybe a little bit more, um, but we're not exactly sure. And and most of the king of Egypt, or the pharaoh's army, would have been sickle sword or axe-wielding infantry and a small aristocratic contingent that would have been made up of of the kind of quick striking mobile unit of the day, the chariot. And these chariots are intricately made, exquisitely decorated, and they're, they're pulled by small horses or ponies, teams of them. The warrior would dart in and out of the fighting, spearing the less mobile enemy infantry or firing arrows down on them as they swept by. A mix of shock and awe, light troop screening and recon duty, and overpowering mobile weight, chariots played a huge role in ancient warfare, especially in Egypt. And eventually, like all weapon systems, the chariot would be surpassed, but its key role in establishing Egyptian dominance can't be overstated. Next week, when we cover Kadesh, the Battle of Kadesh, uh, I'll go a little bit more into the Egyptian chariot. So in the second year of his reign, Thutmose III gathers his army and set out to punish his pain-in-the-butt northern neighbors. Leaving in late April, the Egyptian army moved with an almost modern alacrity, reaching Gaza in only nine days. That's a trip of 160 miles, meaning the pharaoh's men averaged almost 20 miles a day. Very few armies in history have moved at such speed. Now so clearly, Tut moved decisively and quickly, and as well, as we'll see in the battle itself, these attributes really do come in handy. Trust me, Caesar would have approved. Tutmos III moved on from Gaza to Yehem, going another ninety miles in twelve days, and he camped less than twenty miles from the city of Megiddo. So now you're probably asking yourself, why, why the city of Megiddo? What, what makes this town so important? Well, simply put, Tel Megiddo, or Har Megiddo, meaning the mountain of Megiddo, is positioned in a perfect spot to control the trade routes into and out of Syria, as well as access to the rich Mediterranean coastal cities. Any attempt at conquering the region requires control of that hilltop town. It's why some historians say this and Adrianople are likely the two most fought over places on the planet. They are both perfectly positioned to control access to wealthy commercial regions. Also added uh, incentive, Tut had uh, had his intel report back to him and they apparently informed him that the King of Kadesh, his chief enemy and all of the King of Kadesh's allied kings, had all met up and gathered inside the walls of Megiddo itself. So in his mind, this was a strategic twofer. Take the city he had to take anyways, and at the same time kill or capture all the leaders of the insurgency. Kind of a no-brainer. But the reasons why Megiddo was such an important city were also why it was such a dangerous target to take. Being on top of a hill that dominated the landscape, the city was pretty easily defensible. And there were only three roads, two of which uh, were heavily defended by the rebel army. The road to the north was longer and eventually hit the major road to Tanakh and then south to Megiddo. And then the southern road led to the town of Tanakh itself and from there went north to Megiddo. So those two options were pretty obviously um, dangerous. The third was by far the most dangerous and posed the greatest risk, but also the greater reward. The Aruna Pass winds its way along the Mount Carmel Ridge, and at the point it opens onto the plain of Megiddo, the pass gets so narrow that an army would have to go single file to get through. The danger here is obviously delivering your army piecemeal to the battlefield is never a wise decision. It usually means your army is about to get shredded. the III's generals all advised against the Pass route for that very reason. And because, like we said at the beginning, there were scribes along with the army, we know what Tutmos said to the sage council of his commanders. He basically said the equivalent of Alexander the Great, retorting to Parmenio. Uh, the said, uh, III said, quote, For they, the enemy, abominated of Ra... Consider thus, quote, has His Majesty gone on another road? Then he fears us, end quote. From A History of Egypt, Volume 2, page 105. So he's telling his generals basically that they can go wherever they want and go whatever way they want to go, but the Pharaoh's taking the Aruna Pass. And of course, the generals consent and unwillingly follow the Pharaoh but this turned out to be the smart call the king of kadesh split his army to cover the north and south roads thinking nobody would be dumb enough to risk the aruna pass leading the way in his chariot the pharaoh came out of the pass and brushed away a small holding force that had been shocked to see the egyptian army in front of them now tutmos iii at this point has shown good judgment and clearly knows what he's doing but it's here that to me he separates himself as a commander He takes his general's advice. When Thutmose III realizes his enemy's mistake and that they're split into two forces and he's positioned in between them, he wants, you know, ever the aggressive, uh, offensive leader, he wants to go on the attack immediately. His generals, however, are smart. They stop him and advise him to hold off until the entire army is collected on the plane and then fully deployed. There's no need to rush. His ability to recognize when he's wrong and then course correct make him, in my opinion, a pretty solid general. So the rest of the day, and this is again crazy because we know it's May 14th. We know the day, which is is thanks to that Egyptian Ernie Pyle. Uh, So the rest of May 14th was spent for Thutmose III deploying and for the King of Kadesh redeploying. That night, they camped on the field across from each other under the walls of the city itself, and on the 15th, battle was joined. Now, here's where the scribes kind of let us down a little bit. Um, They don't really give us much in the way of details for what happened during the battle itself. Basically, they just talk up their boss. Um, You know, they just go into full propaganda mode and talk about how the pharaoh was uh, fighting like the god horus and uh, was firing death down from his electrum chariot and the uh, gods had strengthened his arm and helped him slay the enemy in droves not exactly a blow-by-blow of the fighting but it definitely gives you an idea of what how tutmos the saw himself Basically, the Egyptians held better ground and formed up in an arch that cut off the rebel army's retreats, and so their positioning was better, and it ended up um, leading to victory. Once the fighting began, the king of Kadesh's army broke and ran for the city walls. They threw anything they had on them to the ground to lighten their load, and that's probably what saved them from being massacred. The infantry of Thutmose III couldn't help themselves and stopped their pursuit to pillage and gather the loot strewn across the battlefield. The defeated army raced into the city and eventually some had to scramble over the walls on rope made from clothing after the city gates were closed and barred a little earlier than they probably should have been. Needless to say, Thutmose III was pissed. He could have not only destroyed the enemy army, but taken their stronghold and their leaders in the same day. A good day's bit of business by all accounts. Instead, he was forced to invest the city, building a wall of circumvallation, which is a wall around a wall. And when we get to Elysia, one of my favorite battles, we'll really go into what siege works are like. Um, and so this work wall of circumvallation is one that has only one way in or out. So anybody trying to leave the city has to go through this one gate, um, which puts them in a position where they're either going to be killed or they surrender. Um, the wall was built from local trees and called Tutmos Enclosure of the Asiatics, which is either a wicked boring name or is pretty badass. I can't really decide. The siege itself lasted between three weeks and seven months. Nobody's certain. Uh, We don't exactly know um, how long, but most historians say probably closer to the three weeks than the seven months because that would be a pretty long siege for an army at this time to maintain itself in the field. Although uh, the, the region was plentiful with food, so the Egyptians probably were okay, but we don't really know. As with most sieges, though, eventually the empty bellies inside the city walls did their work, and the city of Megiddo surrendered. The king of Kadesh escaped at some point, but many of his co-conspirators and even his son did not. To his credit, Thutmose III had a light touch in victory. No execution of enemy kings occurred, because he had a game plan. Instead, they were sent back to rule their kingdoms humbly and fully aware of the might of Egyptian arms. Tut did, however, get his pound of flesh in the form of booty, 924 chariots, 2,200 horses, 200 suits of armor, 426 pounds of gold and silver, and the list goes on. And most important, he now had a secure base to launch further operations in the region, and he had control of the Mediterranean port cities, asserting Egyptian hegemony as far north as modern-day Lebanon. The legacy of Megiddo and the III is hard to exaggerate. Tutmos uses uh, these hostages that he takes from the battlefield of Megiddo, and he uses them in a really, really intelligent way. So the defeated enemy kings are forced to send their sons to him as hostages, and including the king of Kadesh, whose son was actually taken on the battlefield. Um, and he takes them back to Egypt with him to basically raise them and and kind of brainwash them and It works to force those vassal kings to cooperate with the king of, of the Pharaoh um, because they are in a position where they their their heir, the next in line for their seat, is kind of being held with a, a an axe over their head. Uh, under the the pharaoh and then it also egyptianizes these young men or the princes and princesses that were taken so that when they return home to rule they'd have a more pro-egypt outlook and they'd see the world through almost egyptianized that uh, that they had gained while being held as hostages uh, i believe the the romans would use this very successfully i think the chinese did it's a very uh, successful and low-cost, low-energy way to perform uh, kind of ju- di- diplomatic jiu-jitsu. You, you've kind of taken the energy of your enemy and, and sent it back at them with, uh, with more power. Uh, I don't know if that's how jujitsu is done, but that's what I'm going to go with. Uh, Tutmos III went on to fight many, many campaigns over his career, and he even had to fight a few more in the the Canaan region. But it was rarely in danger of being lost to the Egyptian empire. And again, it's, it's a wise decision and, and clear thinking that sets Thutmose III apart. He, he also went on to extend the Egyptian empire to its greatest extent. And with all that tribute and loot coming in, many of the temples and structures that we know of today were built. The size of the empire required a larger and larger, more elaborate bureaucracy. The priestly orders that uh, existed had to be expanded to better thank the gods for all the victory and success. The temples obviously needed to be adorned in beautiful art, which made the craftsmen and artists of ancient Egypt uh, incredible. and, and, And that whole scene flourished and all of which helped to create the ancient Egypt that we know of today, beautiful, mysterious, fabulously wealthy and powerful. Had Tutmosis III not taken the Aruna pass and beaten the king of Kadesh and his allies, it's possible Egypt would have stayed isolationist and a small regional power and Really, what's fascinating to me is I, I just love the idea of that. How does history look today if Egypt never really reached the, uh, the Egyptian empire's stature and status that we know of? I really, I think that's a really interesting counter history to, to imagine and delve into. And lastly, but it, it does have to be mentioned, Megiddo is the site of the first recorded battle in human history, as I said at the top. But it's also the Hebrew word for Armageddon. And it's the site where the biblical end times is supposed to begin and the end of the world is. So the start of military history and its end are supposedly at the same place, the city of Megiddo. Kind of like um, what McConaughey's character in True Detective said, time is a flat circle. All right, thanks again for listening, guys. As always, please, please, please rate, review, subscribe. Check us out on Twitter. We are on Instagram, where we are doing live streams every Wednesday at 8, kind of breaking down the episodes and a look ahead to the future. And we're having guests on. Next week, we're going to have a couple of... Egyptologists and archaeologists on the show to talk about uh, what what they do when they're in the field over there. Um, there's a great podcast called the Egyptian History Podcast. Check that out. They do some awesome work. Um, very, very intelligent and well done. Well made podcast. Um, also check out the book uh, 100 Decisive Battles by Paul K. Davis. The McGill's Military History encyclopedias um and i have used those for sources on this episode so check those out um we are on tiktok doing the great commander series which you'll actually be able to vote on uh on instagram which ones we do uh when you know once a week we'll put one out And again, rate, review, subscribe. Next week, we have the Battle of Kadesh with Ramses II and a heck of a lot of chariots. And then down the road, we're going to round out this ancient history uh, run of of battles with the Battle of Troy. So hang in there for the next episode next week on Wednesday. And again, thank you for listening. I really appreciate you guys. Uh, Thanks for sticking around. Have a good one.